Well, welcome again. So let's pray, then we'll jump into Ezekiel chapter 25 and on. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. And we just thank you that you are a gracious God. And even in the midst of judgment, you remember mercy and the purpose of your discipline and your judgments is to make it so that people will know that you are the Lord, that they will come into relationship with you. So, Lord, I pray that we will see that in our life and we can apply what we're learning to our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen. So, we're going to cover like four chapters today, so 25 through 28, and this is God's sovereignty over the nations and Satan. And it's an interesting section of Ezekiel. We're moving from the first 24 chapters, where it talks about judgments and warnings to the people of Jerusalem and we move into a new section it's 25 through 32 and it's God judging the nations surrounding Israel and Jerusalem so let's do a memory verse together we do this each week and it gives us the main focus of the book of Ezekiel so we keep the big picture it's a part of the new covenant so Ezekiel 36 26 and 27 I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Okay, so I'm just going to start with a quote from John Corson. The first 24 chapters of the book of Ezekiel consist of warnings to the people of Jerusalem that judgment was coming. Chapters 25 through 32, however, consist of prophecies directed not to Jerusalem, but to the surrounding nations, because although judgment begins at the house of God, 1 Peter 4.17, it is not limited to the house of God. He will judge not only Judah, but the nations surrounding Judah. So... Judgment begins at the house of God, and yes, that's true, so God judged Israel first, but the surrounding nations would also receive their judgment. So, the ancient hatred. Have you noticed that the whole world hates Israel? Well, not the whole world, but most of the world hates Israel. God has preserved some countries that still favor Israel. But overall, Israel has generally been hated by almost everybody. So the background to where we're up to now, as we're following our story, is that Jerusalem, Judah, have been disobedient to God. They've been worshipping idols, they've been killing their children, all those things. God has been calling them to come back. They've refused. He sent the Babylonians there twice. They've taken some of the people and... It was a warning. The city was still standing. The temple was still standing. But God said, if you don't repent, there's going to be a third invasion by the Babylonians. And this time, it's not going to be pretty. They're going to destroy the city, destroy the temple, and most of the people will be killed. So last week, what we found out was the siege had actually started. No more talk. The Babylonians had come down and had surrounded Jerusalem. And they were starting their siege. So, 
It's only a matter of time before Nebuchadnezzar breaks through Jerusalem's defenses and kills most of the remaining people and destroys the city and the temple. Now, what are the surrounding nations going to do? Are they going to jump in and say, oh no, we don't want the temple to be destroyed? Or are they going to, yay, the temple's down, Judah's destroyed, the people of God are gone? What do you think they're going to do? Well, they were laughing, mocking, not just Israel, but also God. They were rejoicing over Jerusalem's destruction. Now, this goes back to what we call the ancient hatred, as I mentioned before, because many of these nations surrounding Israel were Arab nations. Nations surrounding Israel back then were called Arabs because they were related to Abraham's other sons, like, for example, Ishmael and also Lot's sons, Moab and Amnon, and Abraham had other sons through uh, Keturah, I think his other wife was, after Sarah died. And so basically these relatives or cousins of Israel, they all hated Israel. Ishmael mocked Isaac when he was weaned. You can see Genesis 21.9. And basically that's the beginning of the hatred and persecution of the nation of Israel by the Arabs, the people or the cousins of Israel. So again, not all Arabs are descended from Abraham, but many of them are. And some of the nations we'll see today are actually directly descended back to Abraham. Do you think anything's changed? Do you think the world has changed their view of Israel? That they think, oh, we love Israel now. We love the God of Israel. No. So what happened when Israel became a nation in 1948? All the nations around them, mass attack. Yeah, a combined attack. And they almost wiped them out. But through a miracle, God helped them to survive. With like one tank and one plane or something like that, they managed to fend off six different armies, Arab armies, coming in. And then it went on and on, the Six-Day War, Yom Kippur War, all those things. And so that's been happening for the past 75 years. But this hatred is not limited to just the Arabs. Many other nations, in fact, the whole world, it seems, hate Israel. Why? Because it's Satan's long-standing goal to eliminate Israel. Why? Because the Saviour is going to come through Israel, right? And so basically, in Satan's war against God, Satan wants to eliminate and destroy Israel because Israel is the vessel that God uses to bring the Messiah into the world and to be a witness to the world. So I'm going to read Revelation 12, verses 1 to 6, and this helps us to understand the anti-Semitic vibe, the anti-Semitic common theme in the world with all the nations and the people against Israel. It says this, Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Now, we know that's Israel from Genesis 37, verses 9 to 10, Joseph's dream, which Jacob interpreted. Then being with child, that is Jesus, she cried out in labor and pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. And we know from further down in the chapter, in verse 9, this is Satan. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven, that is the angels, and threw them to the earth. That's the satanic rebellion against God. And the dragon stood before the woman, Israel, 
who was ready to give birth to devour her child, Jesus, as soon as it was born. She bought a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And obviously, like as it says in Psalm 2, that's the Messiah. And her child was caught up to God and his throne. That's the ascension. Acts 1, 9-11 Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God. So it's Edom or modern day Jordan. That they should feed her there 1,260 days. And that's the last three and a half years of the seven year tribulation. So in these verses we have the basic history of the nation of Israel and their purpose. And what do you notice? The dragon is there to persecute Israel. Satan is there to persecute Israel. Now, another thing we've got to learn is God's sovereignty over the nations and also Satan. So we look around the world today and we think, oh, all these people are getting away with so much. How can that be true that God is in control? Well, we're going to see how. God allows people to have free choice to make their own choices, but those choices have consequences and God will judge sin eventually. In his patience, he gives people time to repent. He doesn't want anyone to perish, but wants all to come to repentance. And also in Revelation chapters 5 and 6, what does it say? God is on the throne. God has never come off his throne. The Father has been on the throne the whole time of human history. So he's always been ruling. He's always been in control. He has always been in control of world events. Now, we're going to see some amazing detailed and specific prophecies covering hundreds of years. It's humanly impossible to predict these events which happen through multiple agents, like multiple nations and people, over a long period of time. And you see that God knows everything from the beginning to the end. Nations might think they're so powerful that they're indestructible, but in God's eyes, all nations have a shelf life. They have an expiry date. And when God has finished with his purpose for them, or they are ready to be judged, then they will go. Now, as we go on through, we think that, well, it appears that the only people listening to Jeremiah and Ezekiel were the Israelites, but their prophecies were well known far and wide. And God makes himself known to the Gentiles by foretelling exactly what would happen before it happened. So we're going to cover Ezekiel's prophecies in chapters 25 through 28 concerning the future of the following nations. So we've got Ammon. They are the descendants of Lot, Abraham's nephew. We have Moab. They are also the descendants of Lot, Abraham's nephew. They're half-brothers. Same father, different mother. The incestual relationship that Lot's daughters had after Sodom was destroyed by fire and brimstone. Then you have the Philistines, and they're not blood-related. Tyre, they're not blood-related. And Sidon, they're not blood-related to Israel. So, as you can see, some of the Arabs, like the Ammon, Moab, and Edom, they're all blood-related, and you can understand that hatred goes back to Abraham, Isaac, and Ishmael. But the other nations, it's just satanic. And then it finishes with Israel, and it doesn't judge them. This time, it's their future blessing. So I've got a map on the 
board. I hope you can see it just to help you see where all these countries are. So here's Israel on the west of the Jordan River and you got the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea down here. And on this side, up top, directly across the Jordan River, you got Ammon. And below that, next to the Dead Sea, you've got Moab. And below the Dead Sea, on the same side, is Edom on the east. And if you go up the coast, it's not on the picture, but up the coast just up here is Tyre and Sidon, and that is modern-day Lebanon, what we know as Lebanon today. So the first one is the proclamation against Ammon in Ezekiel 25, 1-7. says, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face against the Ammonites and prophesy against them. Say to the Ammonites, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God. Because you said, Aha, against my sanctuary when it was profaned, and against the land of Israel when it was desolate, and against the house of Judah when they went into captivity. That's the ancient hatred, right? Indeed, therefore, I will deliver you as a possession to the men of the east, and they shall set their encampments among you and make their dwellings among you. They shall eat your fruit, they shall drink your milk, and I will make Rabbah a stable for camels and Ammon a resting place for flocks. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. For thus says the Lord God, Because you clapped your hands, stamped your feet, and rejoiced in heart with all your disdain, For the land of Israel, again the ancient hatred. Indeed, therefore, I will stretch out my hand against you and give you as plunder to the nations. I will cut you off from the peoples and I will cause you to perish from the countries. I will destroy you and you shall know that I am the Lord. Remember the purpose here? You shall know that I am the Lord. So the Ammonites were a nomadic people who lived on the other side of the Jordan River the east side of the Jordan River, north of Moab. And again, as I said before, Ammon and Moab were the product of incestuous relationships between Lot and his daughters. And you find that in Genesis 19, 36-38. So through Lot, they are related to Israel. Lot was Abraham's nephew. Now what did God promise in Genesis 12, 3? He said, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you. Now, does God mean what he says? I think so. So we see that these nations who were cursing Israel, laughing at Israel, rejoicing in Israel's suffering and pain and downfall, God would end up disciplining them. Now, what about us in Australia? How are we going as far as our love for Israel? Well, we're not going very well. We are distancing ourselves from Israel. So I hope we can learn as a nation this lesson so we don't turn against Israel because it's not going to go well for us. Now, a quote from Clark here on the fulfillment of this prophecy. The fulfillment of this prediction is not noted in Scripture, but Josephus tells us that about five years after the taking of Jerusalem, Nebuchadnezzar turned his arms against the Ammonites and Moabites and afterwards against Egypt. Having subdued those nations, he returned to Babylon. And that's from Josephus' Antiquities. And another quote, The pronouncement of the Lord was that Ammon and Moab were not to be remembered among the nations. Both were absorbed by the Arabs, and that happened. So again, another true prophecy that we can look back and say, yep, tick that one, complete. Now we go to Moab. 
chapter 25, verses 8 through 11. Thus says the Lord God, because Moab and Seir say, Look, the house of Judah is like all the nations. That's very derogatory. We're putting God down there. Therefore, behold, I will clear the territory of Moab of cities, of the cities on its frontier, the glory of the country Beth Jeshimoth, Baal Meon, and Kerjapheim. To the men of the east, I will give it as a possession, together with the Ammonites, that the Ammonites may not be remembered among the nations. And I will execute judgments upon Moab, and they shall know that I am the Lord. So, just like he did with Ammon, he will judge Moab by the hand of the Babylonians. And notice they had no respect for the one true God and his temple or his people. So he comes with application, dishonoring God's name. They said, look, the house of Judah is like all nations. Now, do you think they might have been partly justified in saying that? Absolutely, yeah. So Israel were the people of God, but they were not acting like it. So today, it's like someone saying to a backslidden Christian, you call yourself a Christian, but you sure don't act like one. And so we bring shame upon God, and we bring shame upon the church. We do that when we live for ourselves and rebel against God. Ezekiel 25, 12-14, this is now the proclamation against Edom. Thus says the Lord God, because of what Edom did against the house of Judah by taking vengeance, and has greatly offended by avenging itself on them. Again, the ancient hatred. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will also stretch out my hand against Edom, cut off man and beast from it, and make it desolate from Teman. Dedan shall fall by the sword. I will lay my vengeance on Edom by the hand of my people Israel, that they may do in Edom according to my anger and according to my fury, and they shall know my vengeance, says the Lord God. Now, who is Edom? Well, it's the descendants of Esau. Do you remember how Esau hated Jacob? Wanted to kill him? Okay. This nation is the worst of the lot. Has greatly offended by avenging itself on them. So, a quote here from Feinberg. The phrase taking vengeance is literally revenging with revenge. It was to be an unrelieved, unabating revenge. So a constant, unabating hatred. And they never missed an opportunity to hurt the Israelites. So you got Ammon up the top, Moab below that, and Edom below Moab. So he's moving south. Verse 14, God eventually used the nation of Israel to finish off the existence of Edom as a nation. So I'm going to explain how this happened. First, in the 6th century BC, Nebuchadnezzar took away Edom's control of their section of the king's highway, meaning their economy tanked. So basically, they didn't get the taxes and the royalties from all the goods and services going through that domain thoroughfare from you know the international thoroughfare there which means that they missed out on a lot of income. By the 4th century BC, the Nabataeans had replaced the Edomites in Edom, and the Edomites moved into southern Judah, and so they lost their homeland, and they moved into southern Judah. 
Finally, in 109 BC, Wright says, Eden was finally subjugated by the Jewish leader, John Hierarchanus. And that was it. God's words always come to pass, yeah? So that's the story of the Edomites. Now, Philistia, the Philistines. So this is verse 15 to 17. Thus says the Lord God, Because the Philistines dealt vengefully and took vengeance with a spiteful heart to destroy because of the old hatred. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will stretch out my hand against the Philistines and I will cut off the Cherethites and destroy the remnant of the seacoast. I will execute great vengeance on them with furious rebukes and they shall know that I am the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon them. Okay, verse 15. To destroy because of the old hatred or ancient hatred. Again, it's not just Israel's cousins, it's the other nations. Now, where did the Philistines come from? Well, they were sea peoples. They came in ships from the Aegean. And they had a long history of animosity against Israelites. And you remember they were always fighting? And it was the Philistines who killed Saul and Jonathan at Gilboa, that battle there. And then David became king. And for a long time the Philistines subjugated Israel. Now, another application here. We keep on reading this phrase at the end of each section, in verse 17, for example, and they shall know that I am the Lord. So I've got a quote from David Guzik here. As with the Ammonites, the Moabites, and the Edomites, God would reveal himself to these pagan, disobedient nations through his judgment. God's purpose was always greater than just judgment or vengeance. There was and always is a strong purpose of his self-revelation. So God is always trying to reveal himself to these people so they can repent. And in verse 17 it says with furious rebukes. And Paul has a good comment here. In fierceness of anger and without pity, they, as other stupid nations, will not see till they feel, and then they shall confess It is the hand of an angry but just and mighty God. And so that's the purpose of God's discipline. They're not going to respond until they are disciplined. Another quote from Feinberg, It is solemn to consider that all four nations of this chapter showed vindictive jealousy and hatred toward Israel. The nations of earth refused to learn that God meant every word in the Abrahamic covenant of Genesis 12, 1-3 and verse 7. No nation under heaven could touch Israel for ill without bringing down upon them the wrath of Almighty God. So that's a pretty strong warning, eh? Don't mess with Israel because God will defend them. Now, we're going to move into one of the most amazing and detailed prophecies in the Old Testament. It's the sequential destruction of the city of Tyre. So if someone says to you, ah, no, anyone could make up those prophecies, take them to here, okay? So we'll go into Ezekiel chapter 26. The first two verses, this is Tyre's hatred of Israel, again, the ancient hatred. And it came to pass in the eleventh year, on the first day of the month, that the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, because Tyre has said against Jerusalem, Aha! She is broken, 
who was the gateway of the peoples. Now she is turned over to me. I shall be filled. She is laid waste. Ha ha ha. Yeah. So again, we see the irrational, unreasonable, satanic, ancient hatred towards the Jewish people. Later on in chapter 28, we're going to see why these people hated Israel is because the king of Tyre was moved and influenced by Satan himself. And so we see that the direct influence of Satan was to make him hate Israel. Okay, verses 3 to 6, this is a summary of the destruction of Tyre. Therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Tyre, and will cause many nations to come up against you, as the sea causes its waves to come up. And they, Nebuchadnezzar, shall destroy the walls of Tyre and break down her towers. I will also scrape her dust from her and make her like the top of a rock. It shall be a place for spreading nets in the midst of the sea, for I have spoken, says the Lord God. It shall become plunder for the nations. Also her daughter villages, which are in the fields, shall be slain by the swords. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. So, as I said, this is a broad summary of what will happen. Now, God is going to say exactly how it's going to happen through the various stages of this destruction of Tyre. So remember, this is starting in the 6th century BC, and the whole process will finish in the 14th century AD. So this is like a 2,000-year span. So, verses 7 through 11, Nebuchadnezzar's role in the destruction of Tyre. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will bring against Tyre from the north Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. That's pretty clear, right? King of kings, with horses and chariots and with horsemen and an army with many people. He, no, no, it's a pronoun, he, okay? He will slay with the sword your daughter villages in the fields. He will heap up a siege mound against you build a wall against you and raise a defense against you. He will direct his battering rams against your walls and with his axes he will break down your towers. Because of the abundance of his horses, their dust will cover you. Your walls will shake at the noise of the horsemen, the wagons and the chariots when he enters your gates as men enter a city that has been breached. With the hooves of his horses, he will trample all your streets He will slay your people by the sword, and your strong pillars will fall to the ground. Again, notice the pronoun he. This is the same person doing all this work. Now, history tells us Nebuchadnezzar's 13-year siege of Tyre began around 586 BC, around the time when Jerusalem fell. Now, 13 years is a long time to be under siege. How can it last so long? Well, they had a fast-flowing spring. It's still flowing today. Brazilian freshwater spring. It just flows into the sea today. You can go and see it. And because they're on the coast, the ships could come and, you know, provide food for the city. Now, after 13 years of laying siege to Tyre, Nebuchadnezzar finally did break through the wall. But when he got in there, there was only a small garrison and a few people. The rest of the people the government and all that had moved onto a little island offshore, about half a mile offshore, about 800 metres, less than a kilometre offshore. And so they could probably see Nebuchadnezzar break through the city and go, you know, put their fingers on their nose and wiggle their fingers and say, uh-huh, you can't get us. 
13 years and you get nothing. Yes, you can destroy our city, but we've made another one now. So we'll see you later. And that's exactly what happened. Nebuchadnezzar did not defeat them. 13 years of hard work and all he got to do was destroy the abandoned buildings. Ezekiel chapter 29, verses 18 through 20. This is in the prophecy concerning Egypt. So we're jumping ahead a little bit, but this describes what happened to Nebuchadnezzar as he was laying siege to Tyre. So, son of man, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, caused his army to labor strenuously against Tyre. Every head was made bald and every shoulder rubbed raw, yet neither he nor his army received wages from Tyre for the labor which they expended on it. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Surely I will give the land of Egypt to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. He shall take away her wealth, carry off her spoil, and receive her pillage, and that will be the wages for his army. I have given him the land of Egypt for his labor, because I work for me, says the Lord God. So, they didn't get any of the treasure of Tyre, but God says, It was my will that you defeated Tyre and broke down their city, so I'm going to pay your army with the riches from Egypt when you defeat them. So, so far the prophecy in verses 7 through 11 has been fulfilled exactly. But what about the rest of it? Well, in verse 12, where there's a change of pronoun, it goes from he to they. Okay, And the he, again, is Nebuchadnezzar. And they, in verse 12, is Alexander the Great. Now, this is 241 years later, about 345 BC. Alexander the Great comes along and exactly fulfills this next part of the prophecy. So, in verse 12, Ezekiel 26, this is Alexander the Great's role in the destruction of Tyre. So, they, meaning Alexander the Great and his Grecian army, will plunder your riches and pillage your merchandise. They will break down your walls and destroy your pleasant houses. They will lay your stones, your timber, and your soil in the midst of the water. So, what happened? Well, Tyre being an island, and even before they were a coastal city, they had a powerful navy, a bit like England or London back in the colonial days where the navy controlled the seas. And because of that, they could control the trade. Alexander the Great was afraid that Tyre, with their navy, would attack Greece while he was attacking the Medes and Persians. So Alexander decided to attack Tyre first. He demanded that they surrender, but they said, (laughs) yeah, right, Nebuchadnezzar couldn't do it, you won't be able to either. They're half a mile off the coast, they've got a powerful navy, they were quite confident, yeah? So Alexander, being a smart man, took all the stones and timbers from the original coastal city of Tyre and made a causeway or road out to the island. Now it took seven months for Alexander the Great and his army to get all the stones and timbers and dirt and make this road out to the island of Tyre. And when it was complete, he just walked out there, took his war machines and wiped them out. Again, exactly as was predicted by Ezekiel. They will lay your stones, your timber and your soil in the midst of the water, making a road out to the island. It's not over yet. They didn't make it like a flat rock to lay fishing nets on yet. That's 
Next, Ezekiel 26, 13 to 14. Now this is the Saracens' role in the destruction of Tyre, another nation. So, I will put an end to the sound of your songs, and the sound of your harps shall be heard no more. I will make you like the top of a rock, you shall be a place for spreading nets, and you shall never be rebuilt, for I the Lord have spoken, says the Lord God. So, we move forward in time to the 14th century AD. A long time it goes between here, yeah? The final wave of destruction against Tyre was by the Saracens, who destroyed the city so thoroughly that its location was unknown until modern times. And a quote here from Chuck Smith. For years, even the site of the ancient city of Tyre was unknown. It had been so thoroughly destroyed. Less than 200 years ago, as a group of archaeologists were watching some fishermen spreading their nets on the bare rocks to dry, one of them noticed that the rocks were not in a natural formation. And it was then realized that this peninsula that they were on was not natural, but one formed by the siege of the island city of Tyre by Alexander and his forces. Amazing, eh? The only way to recognize that this was where the great city of Tyre once stood was because it wasn't a natural alignment of rocks. So, people might say, well, what about the modern city of Tyre? Well, that's built on a nearby location. It's not built on the same site. And so the site of the ancient city of Tyre is still used as a place for fishermen to dry their nets and it has never been rebuilt as God foretold. So how's that? Again, if you want to show someone a prophecy, which is impossible for a mere man to know all this stuff that would happen in advance, you know, over a long period of time, bring him to this chapter in Ezekiel and explain that to them. Now, verses 15 through 18, the nations mourn over the destruction of Tyre. Thus says the Lord God to Tyre, will the coastlands not shake at the sound of your fall when the wounded cry, when slaughter is made in the midst of you? Then all the princes of the sea will come down from their thrones, lay aside their robes, and take off their embroidered garments. They will clothe themselves with trembling. They will sit on the ground, tremble every moment, and be astonished at you. And they will take up a lamentation for you and say to you, How you have perished, O one inhabited by seafaring men, O renowned city who were strong at sea, she and her inhabitants, who caused their terror to be on all her inhabitants. Now the coastlands tremble on the day of your fall. Yes, the coastlands by the sea are troubled at your departure. Now, consider, if Alexander the Great could defeat Tyre, then those other coastal nations had good reason to be afraid, to be trembling. And a good analogy for today would be, you know, with Tyre being the big military force, the big navy, right? If China defeated America, what chance would Australia have with our powerful ally defeated? I mean, without America around, what are we going to do with our 35 warplanes <laughs> against China, you know? So that's what it was like for the other nations. Now we move on to verses 19 through 21. And this is interesting. It's 
the end of the wicked. It's the pit. It really is the pits being wicked, right? So it's torments in Hades, all right? This is what some people call hell. It's the place of the wicked dead, the temporary abode of the wicked dead. For thus says the Lord God, when I make you a desolate city, like cities that are not inhabited, when I bring the deep upon you and great waters cover you, then I will bring down with those who descend into the pit to the people of old, and I will make you dwell in the lowest parts of the earth, in places desolate from antiquity, with those who go down to the pit, so that you may never be inhabited. And I shall establish glory in the land of the living. I will make you a terror, and you shall be no more. Though you are sought for, you will never be found again, says the Lord God. So, in chapter 32, this is expanded on greatly, and so I'm going to wait until chapter 32 to explain what all that is about. Now, in chapter 27, this is a lamentation for Tyre. It's the destruction of a proud economic powerhouse. And what we see in this chapter is Tyre represented as a beautiful sailing ship with all this magnificent decoration and shipbuilding skill. And, yeah, I'll start reading. So this is Ezekiel chapter 27, 1-36. to The word of the Lord came again to me, saying, Now, son of man, take up a lamentation for Tyre and say to Tyre, You who are situated at the entrance of the sea, a merchant of the peoples on many coastlands, thus says the Lord God, O Tyre, you have said, I am perfect in beauty. Your borders are in the midst of the seas. Your builders have perfected your beauty. They made all your planks of fir trees from Senea. They took a cedar from Lebanon to make your mast. Of oaks from Bashan, they made your oars. The company of the Asherites have inlaid your planks with ivory from the coast of Cyprus. Fine embroidered linen from Egypt was what you spread for your sail. Blue and purple from the coast of Elishath was what covered you. Inhabitants of Sidon and Arvid were your oarsmen. Your wise men, O Tyre, were in you. They became your pilots. So, describing, likening the city of Tyre, the nation of Tyre, to a beautiful ship. Elders of Gebel and its wise men were in you to cork your seams. All the ships of the sea and their oarsmen were in you to market your merchandise. Those from Persia, Lydia and Libya were in your army as men of war. They hung shield and helmet in you. They gave splendor to you. Men of Arvid with your army were on your walls all around. And the men of Gamad were in your towers. They hung their shields on your walls all around. They made your beauty perfect. So they had all these alliances with all these other nations. Tarshish was your merchant because of your many luxury goods. They gave you silver, iron, tin and lead for your goods. Javan, Tubal and Meshach were your traders. They bartered human lives and vessels of bronze for your merchandise. So, slaves. Those from the house of Togamar traded your wares with horses, steeds and mules. The men of Dedan were your traders. Many isles were the market of your hand. They brought you ivory tusks and ebony as payment. Syria was your merchant because of the abundance of goods you made. They gave for your wares emeralds, purple and embroidery, fine linen, corals and rubies. Judah and the land of Israel were your traders. They traded for your merchandise with wheat of minneth, millet, honey, oil and balm. Damascus was your merchant because of the abundance of goods you made, because 
of your many luxury items with the wine of Helwan and with white wool. Dan and Javen paid for your wares, traversing back and forth. Wrought iron, cassia and cane were among your merchandise. Dedan was your merchant in saddlecloths for riding. Arabia and all the princes of Kedar were your regular merchants. They traded with you in lambs, rams and goats. The merchants of Sheba and Ramah were your merchants. They traded for your wares the choicest spices, all kinds of precious stones and gold. Haran, Cana, Eden, the merchants of Sheba, Assyria and Chilmad were your merchants. These were your merchants in choice items, in purple clothes, in embroidered garments, in chests of multicolored apparel, in sturdy woven cords, which were in your marketplace. The ships of Tarshish were carriers of your merchandise. You were filled and very glorious in the midst of the seas. Your oarsmen brought you into many waters. But the east wind broke you in the midst of the seas. So this beautiful ship is now pictured as being shipwrecked. Your riches, wares and merchandise, your mariners, your pilots, your caulkers and merchandisers, all your men of war who are in you and the entire company which is in your midst will fall into the midst of the seas on the day of your ruin. The common land will shake at the sound of the cry of your pilots. All who handle the oar, the mariners, all the pilots of the sea will come down from their ships and stand on the shore. They will make their voice heard because of you. They will cry bitterly and cast dust on their heads. They will roll about in ashes. They will shave themselves completely bald because of you. Gird themselves with sackcloth and weep for you with bitterness of heart and bitter wailing. In their wailing for you, they will take up a lamentation and lament for you. What city is like Tyre, destroyed in the midst of the sea? When your wares went out by sea, you satisfied many people, you enriched the kings of the earth with your many luxury goods and your merchandise. But you are broken by the seas in the depths of the waters. Your merchandise and the entire company will fall in your midst. All the inhabitants of the isles will be astonished at you, their kings will be greatly afraid, and their countenance will be troubled, and the merchants among the peoples will hiss at you. You will become a horror and be no more forever. So, just to summarize this chapter, we can see that Tyre was very affluent and very influential. Again, she was portrayed as a beautifully made ship in verses 3 through 8 that would eventually sink and be destroyed in verse 27. Now, money brings power because it brings control. If you have money, you can control other people. Consider that the nations who traded with Tyre would have suffered a massive financial hit as a whole economy and supply chains were severely disrupted. You know, if you wanted a saddlecloth, well, that was made in one country and that was sent to Tyre and then you could buy it from there, right? It's very, very similar to our modern economy, international economy. So when the center of it is broken, where do you get all those bits and pieces from? You know, where do you buy your lambs or your wheat? The wheat came from Israel. The lambs came from Arabia. So the whole system was broken. And they're all crying over the suffering that they're going through. Now, 
This is also a foretaste of what will happen when God destroys the world economic system at the end of the tribulation, as described in Revelation 18. It won't just be one part of the world system, but it will be the entire world system. Now, an application here. Living in a materialistic world. Ty was all about getting rich. Did you notice that? It's all about getting rich. You made us have a good life. You made us rich. And now we can't have a good life anymore. We're all sad. So this gives us insight into how Satan organizes this evil world system, right? One of the greatest hooks that Satan has in us is our desire for pleasure and the absence of pain and suffering. We want to avoid pain and suffering. And what do people in Western countries fear the most? What are they most scared of? They are afraid of losing their high standard of living. They are afraid of losing their pleasure-filled lives. We take it for granted, but that's what most people in the Western world are afraid of losing. What issues do the politicians focus on to get into power? Well, usually economics, money, and just giving the people what they want to make them feel good, make them have an easy life, a good life. Now, I want to compare Satan's world with what the Bible says, okay? In contrast to what Satan offers and encourages, Scripture has different advice regarding money and wealth. So I'm going to read from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 12 in the NLT. It says this, Yet true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth or great gain. After all, we brought nothing with us when we came into the world, and we can't take anything with us when we leave it. So if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. That's the secret, isn't it? Contentment. The world says you need more, but we need to be content. But people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. But you, Timothy, are a man of God. So run from all these evil things. What's the advice here? But you, Timothy, are a man of God. So run from all these evil things. Pursue righteousness and a godly life, along with faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight for the true faith. Hold tightly to the eternal life to which God has called you, which you have declared so well before many witnesses. So what are we going to hold on to? It says here to hold tightly to the eternal life. The world tells us to hold tightly to the temporary world, yeah, temporary life. So pay attention to that because in our Western world, that is our greatest temptation, I believe. Apart from the lust side of things and the, the sexualized state of our world, the Western world, but this whole thing about comfort, pleasure, all those things. Now, the proclamation against the human prince of Tyre, this is in two parts. And we're going to talk about pride as we go through this. And pride being the root of all sin. Money is a root of all sin. It can cause all sin. But pride is the root of all sin. 
So this first part is the proclamation against the human prince of Tyre. And the next part is the proclamation against the spiritual king or prince of Tyre, which is Satan himself. So let's read verses 1 to 10. The word of the Lord came to me again, saying, Son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, thus says the Lord God, because your heart is lifted up and you say, I am a God, I sit in the seat of gods, in the midst of the seas, yet you are a man and not a God, though you set your heart as the heart of a God. Behold, you are wiser than Daniel, there is no secret that can be hidden from you. Can you hear the sarcasm here? With your wisdom and with your understanding you have gained riches for yourself and gathered gold and silver into your treasuries. By your great wisdom in trade you have increased your riches and your heart is lifted up because of your riches. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have set your heart as a heart of a God, behold, therefore I will bring strangers against you, the most terrible of the nations, and they shall draw their swords against the beauty of your wisdom and defile your splendor. They shall throw you down into the pit, and you shall die the death of the slain in the midst of the seas. Will you still say before him who slays you, kills you, I am a god? So the king of Tyre, he thinks he's a god, and God's saying, okay, when you know Alexander the Great comes along and he kills you, are you going to say, I'm a god before him? But you shall be a man and not a god in the hand of him who slays you. You shall die the death of the uncircumcised by the hand of aliens, for I have spoken, says the Lord. So basically a very unglorious death. Inglorious death. Okay, now, the application here. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. You've heard that phrase before? So this is the danger of pride. So God focuses on one man, the earthly prince of Tyre. And we know that his great wealth, gained through trading, made him very powerful. So this is a warning for us in the church and other places, but especially in the church. Positions of authority are dangerous. Scripture says this in 1 Timothy 3, 6-7. A church leader must not be a new believer because he might become proud. And the devil would cause him to fall. Also, people outside the church must speak well of him so that he will not be disgraced and fall into the devil's trap. Pride. So, this leads into one of the most insightful passages in the scriptures concerning the fall of Satan. And again, it's no wonder that the king of Tyre was proud when we consider that he allowed himself to be controlled by Satan. At least to some degree as he worshipped the demons behind the idols. So when we worship idols, we open ourselves up to satanic influence. So what the Bible tells us is there are demonic lords who reign over regions. And you can see Daniel 10, 13 and 20, where Gabriel is talking about the prince of Persia, the prince of Greece. They're satanic lords, satanic rulers who rule over these regional areas. But we don't need to be controlled or influenced by a demon to be proud. It comes naturally to us all. Yeah? Why? It's a part of our sinful nature. Pride is the root or cause of all sin, both for Satan and for humans and the other angels who fell away too. So what is pride? Let's just try and define pride. Pride, as a basic definition, is not having the correct 
or accurate understanding of who we are. We can either think we are better than we really are or worse than we really are. So humility is the opposite of pride. And that simply means we have the correct or an accurate understanding of who we are. It's not proud to think you are good at something if, in fact, you are really good at it. We had an awesome singer come to Wongatha, and there was nothing wrong with her being able to say, I can sing well, because she could. That's not being proud, that's being humble, because it's a realistic statement. But what we tend to do is either deny the gift that God has given us, or we exaggerate it. Now, as a Christian, these are two statements that we need to remember, which will help us not to be proud. I call them pride-killing statements. Okay, So, John 15.5, Without Christ I can do nothing. And, in 1 Corinthians 4.7, What do you have that you did not first receive? So, remembering these two truths causes us to realize that Whatever gifting and ability we have is a blessing from God. And therefore we must give God the glory for anything good in our lives. Thus we not, as a Christian, right? Thus we not only accurately perceive or understand our strengths and weaknesses, but we also correctly recognize God as being the source of our gifts and of every good thing that happens to us. I think that's important. That we can say, you know, even if we are realistic in our abilities, we can still be proud that, well, I can do this. But if we remember that it all comes from God, and without God I would be nothing, and there's nothing good in me, then that's true humility. First Corinthians 4 7. I'll read that verse in its entirety. For who makes you differ from another, and what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did. Indeed, receive it. Why do you boast as if you had not received it? So what did the king of Tyre do? He said, look at me. Look at what I have done with the riches I have gathered. Look, my wisdom. My wisdom through trading has made me rich and powerful. No. God put you there. God gave you that wisdom to know how to work out this economic system. You need to be giving thanks to God for what he's enabled you to do. Now we move on to this insightful passage, kind of pulling back the, the cloth of this world and looking beyond to Satan. Okay, Remember that beyond this physical world there is a spiritual realm. Yeah. So Ezekiel 28 verses 11 to 19. Lamentation for the king of Tyre, which is Satan. Okay, The prince of Tyre was the physical king, the human king. But the king of Tyre here is Satan. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Interesting, eh? Every precious stone was your covering, the sardius, the topaz, the diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you in the day you were created. You were the anointed cherub who covers, in other words, the top dog. I established you. Remember, we don't have anything that we didn't receive. God established him. God gave him that position. You 
We're on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you, until sin was found in you. What was that? Pride. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within, and you sinned. Therefore I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. Your heart was lifted up, proud, because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they might gaze at you. You defiled your sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities, by the iniquity of your trading. Therefore I brought fire from your midst. It devoured you, and I turned you to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who knew you among the peoples are astonished at you. You have become a horror and shall be no more forever. So, Satan, where was he when God created the world? Watching and rejoicing with the rest of the angels. Job 38 verse 7. Where was Satan once the Garden of Eden was created? Well, verse 13 tells us he was in the Garden of Eden. Satan or Lucifer, and you can his name is Lucifer in Isaiah 14, 12 to 15. It's like a parallel passage talking about the downfall of Satan. He was the most powerful and beautiful angel that God created. He was like the worship leader of heaven, the angel with the most prominent position. So another tidbit here. One of the most likely places you're going to see a person get proud is as a worship leader in the church. There can be a lot of focus on the person. Now, his problem was that he thought to himself, I will be like the Most High. You read that in Isaiah 14, 14. Lucifer wanted to be like God, to receive all the praise, honor, and glory that only God is worthy of. He forgot, 1 Corinthians 4, 7, that everything he had was a gift from God. What did God say in verse 14 in Ezekiel here? I established you. And therefore, Lucifer had nothing to boast about. Nothing. Everything he had was a gift from God. Now, Satan used this same lie in the Garden of Eden. And we can read in Genesis 3, 4-5. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Pride is what causes people to refuse to come to God because they refuse to accept that apart from God, there is nothing good in and of themselves. And also, they want to live life their own way, being independent of God. So there's a parallel here. So remember this. The foreboding parallel. As the prince of Tyre was judged and destroyed because of his pride, so will Satan eventually be completely destroyed because of his pride. And so will anyone else who dares to rebel against God because of their pride. I'm talking about someone who refuses to submit to God for salvation. Now, one last nation that Ezekiel talks against is the Sidonians. And this is verses 20 to 24, prophecy against Sidon. 
and this is the town north of Tyre. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face towards Sidon, and prophesy against her, and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Sidon, I will be glorified in your midst, and they shall know that I am the Lord when I execute judgments in her, and am hallowed, or revered, in her. For I will send pestilence upon her, and blood in her streets. The wounded shall be judged in her midst, by the sword against her on every side, they shall know that I am the Lord. Again, this thing. God is doing this not to say, Haha, I'm better than you. I can do what I want. No, he's saying, I want you to know me. Now, verse 24, the ancient hatred again. And there shall no longer be a prickling briar or a painful thorn for the house of Israel from among all who are around them who despise them. Notice that? From around all who are around them who despise them. The ancient hatred. Then they shall know that I am the Lord God. So, as far as we know, as far as we can look back, Israel has always been surrounded by people who hate them. So, again, going right back to the start, that passage in Revelation, the satanic origin of anti-Semitism. Satan wants to destroy Israel because Israel is God's nation to bring the Messiah into the world. Now, it finishes on a positive note, fortunately. Ezekiel 28, 25-26, Israel's future blessing. Thus says the Lord God, When I have gathered the house of Israel from the peoples among whom they are scattered, and I am hallowed in them in the sight of the Gentiles, notice that, in the sight of the Gentiles, then they will dwell in their own land which I gave to my servant Jacob, and they will dwell safely there, build houses and plant vineyards. Yes, they will dwell securely when I execute judgments on all those around them who despise them, then they shall know that I am the Lord their God. Again, how many times have you read that statement, then they shall know that I am the Lord their God? Remember that it means God wants them to know him personally. So, for me, this is a really beautiful way to end this section describing the judgment of the nation surrounding Israel. Once again, as they are in the middle of suffering God's severe discipline, God reassures his chosen people of his unconditional promises to them. And it reminded me of Psalm 30 verse 5. For his anger is but for a moment, his favor is for life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. And a quote to finish on from Taylor. The holy people, Israel, are the channel through whom the holy God reveals himself. There is no mention of judgments upon Israel that is presumably thought of as a thing of the past. So, I want you just to finish on this thought. The same is true for the church. We are under God's discipline now. God is working on us. God is changing us to be in his image. Israel is going through a horrible trial. Its purpose? To make them into God's image, yeah? And one day, it says in the New Testament in Jude, we will stand faultless before God. God will have completed his work in us, just as he will complete his work in Israel. So let's pray. Thank you, Father, for these chapters, Lord. It's pretty doom and gloom, but Father, there's a strong positive message in here, a strong warning even. Lord, help us to pay attention. Help us not to be proud. Help us to recognize that we need to honestly evaluate ourselves. 
not to think any better or worse than what we really are, but also to come back to that place of realizing that any good gift, anything, comes from you. It says in the book of James. Help us to live humbly, recognizing that anything good that we have in our lives, anything good that we've been able to achieve, is all a gift from you, and to give the glory to you. Father, please help us to do this in Jesus' name. Amen.